Okay, so the final speaker is Dr. Chinazo Cunningham. Um, Chinazo is an associate professor of medicine in the departments of medicine and family and social medicine at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, the Montefiore Medical Center, and uh, has particular uh, professional and personal interest in HIV and substance abuse and health services to marginalized populations. And she's going to really give us an update on substance abuse, um, opiates, and HIV. Great. Thanks for sticking around for the last talk on this beautiful February afternoon. Um, so my um, disclosure is my husband's employed by Quest Diagnostics. We own stock and stock options in the company. So the learning objectives here are to um, name pain management strategies that are consistent with national guidelines, uh, describe common mistakes uh, in interpreting urine toxicology tests, and describe the benefits of integrating buprenorphine and HIV treatment. So I'm going to cover a little bit of the opioid epidemic, the epidemiology of it, some challenges in pain management with opioids, um, opioid use and HIV outcomes, and then integration of buprenorphine into HIV treatment. So unless you've been living in a cave for the past couple of years, we've all heard about the opioid epidemic in this country. Um, and you know, the, the, the graphs that I'm going to show you here are national data, but they really mirror the data here in New York City as well. And so since 2000, there's a tremendous increase in the number of um, over, drug overdose deaths in the United States. Um, and so you can see here the drug-related the drug overdose deaths that are associated with opioid analgesics in particular. Now, you might look at this graph and say, oh, in fact, the, this has tailed off or plateaued off, and perhaps we're in an okay place. But here's the other half of the coin, which is that heroin use um, and drug um, overdoses related to heroin are really continuing to increase. And I, I personally see this in my patients. I've had more overdoses in the last few months than in the last 10 years. Um, this is even more recent data um, up through 2015 that looks at heroin overdose deaths in the United States. And you know, this is a really dramatic um, curve here. These, th these numbers are not going to get better anytime soon. Uh, you know, I don't see any sort of silver bullet here. And you know, I just have to say that if there were other illnesses that had curves that look like this, you know, we would be outraged. And I think really with substance use, um, we're beginning to maybe get there and go in that direction, but um, we really have a lot of work to do. So what about treatment for um, opioid use disorder? So from national data in 2013, um, we can see that about two and a half million people had um, opioid abuse or dependence. And in the blue bar, that represents those who have heroin abuse or dependence, and in the red portion of that bar, it's those with opioid analgesics. And then to the left, the bar um, with opioid agonist treatment, you can clearly see that there's a tremendous gap in the number of people who need treatment and the number of people who actually get the best evidence-based treatment. Um, so this is terrible, obviously. Um, and I think we uh, are in a really good position to really make you know, some changes in this graph. So I'm going to uh, discuss, uh, discuss a case here that will bring up some of the challenging issues that I'm sure everyone here faces. 
Um, so the patient's a 45-year-old Hispanic male with HIV, depression, opioid use disorder in remission. He last used heroin eight years ago, and he's receiving HIV primary care from you for the past two years without any problems. Um, you can see that he's doing well in terms of his HIV, he's adherent to medications, he has an undetectable viral load. He's had low-level constant right hip pain for the past few months, but now he reports that his pain is getting worse. He's tried acetaminophen, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and physical therapy with little improvement. However, he tried his friend's oxycodone, and it helped relieve his pain. So this is a common scenario I've been confronted with with my patients now for several years. Um, and, you know, I think th this is certainly one of the challenges. What should we be worried about? You know, what are we, you know, thinking? And so now, with all of the spotlight on opioid analgesics and the opioid, you know, opioid epidemic, perhaps you know, the answer is no more opioids. But um, let's talk about the specific issues in terms of HIV and opioids. So what we do know from data are that HIV-positive patients have chronic pain and are more likely to have chronic pain than those who are HIV-negative. So in some studies, the prevalence of chronic pain is even up to 90% in HIV-positive patients. We also know that there's a diverse etiology of pain, ranging from HIV itself to aging, so common things like osteoarthritis, and then medications, although this is less common uh, with today's regimens. We also know that opioid analgesics are more likely to be prescribed for HIV-positive than negative patients, and in some studies, up to half of HIV-infected patients have, um, with chronic pain, are prescribed opioid analgesics. In addition, doses of opioid analgesic tend to be higher in those who are HIV positive than negative. And of course, there's more comorbid illnesses with HIV positive people than negative people, right? And so we know that substance use disorders are more common and mental illness is more common. So all of this is really the perfect storm um, for increasing risk of overdose and misuse and disorders. So after gathering more history and conducting a physical exam, you're confident that the patient's pain is due to osteoarthritis. You talk to the patient um, about your hesitancy to prescribe opioid analgesics because, his, because of his risks of having poor outcomes. And you both agree that referral to an orthopedic surgeon is a good next step. One month later, uh, the patient reports that his pain continued to worsen after his last visit with you, and he went to the emergency room, and lo and behold, he was prescribed oxycodone and acetaminophen. Again, for me, not, not so uncommon. Um, this worked for his pain, so he's asking um, for you to prescribe more. So now what? So um, which of these responses is consistent um, with national treatment guidelines? So you continue to prescribe oxycodone and acetaminophen, but only for a month? You changed short-acting oxycodone to a long-acting oxycodone. You reduce the amount of oxycodone from 60 milligrams a day total to 15 milligrams a day total. Or you, you do the same thing, reduces oxycodone from 60 milligrams total to 15 milligrams total and add clonazepam.
Okay. Great. Um, so a little bit of variety, um, but most of you chose to reduce this oxycodone from 60 milligrams total per day to 15 milligrams total per day. Um, and, and that is correct. So one of the important things here is to understand how much, what it, how much is 60 milligrams of oxycodone. So um, with opioids, really one of the most important things is to think about the morphine milliequivalents so we can compare different opioids to, di to different opioids. Um, and one plug here is that, that the New York City Department of Health actually has a great app that's free that you can put on your phone that, where you can plug in whether the medication is oxycodone, codeine, hydrocodone, morphine, methadone, whatever, and you can get the number of morphine milliequivalents so that you can sort of do these calculations in your head or not in your head. So what, so what do the guidelines actually say? So the CDC came out with guidelines um, last year um, for prescribing opioids for chronic pain. And so essentially these guidelines have sort of three big buckets in terms of um, recommendations. And so they, they're around when to initiate or continue opioids for chronic pain, um, which opioid to choose, the dose, the duration, the follow-up, and the discontinuation, and then assessing risks and harms. And so there's a clear recommendations um, to, to really try and aim for non-pharmacologic and non-opioid therapies um, and to establish goals of treatment to discuss risks and benefits. And then in terms of if you do end up prescribing an opioid, um, to prescribe immediate release, so short-acting, not long-acting, um, to prescribe in the lowest effective dose. And so what we do know is that the risk for overdose goes up as the amount of morphine milliequivalents increases. So there's no like real threshold, but certainly the risk goes up at 50 morphine milliequivalents and then up further at 90 morphine milliequivalents. So this patient who was taking 60 milligrams total of um, oxycodone equals 90 morphine milliequivalents. And so that puts this patient at risk, and so that's the reason to sort of come down on that dose. Um, in addition, um, we don't want to prescribe greater quantity than needed, and so the recommendations are for three to seven days. And actually, the New York State legislation just passed a law, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with this, but to now require that for acute pain that the dose is, that the number of days is less than seven days. Um, and then in terms of addressing risk and the harms, um, consider naloxone, and again, our Department of Health is really wonderful, has free naloxone kits to give out, and we have a standing order that patients can go to pharmacies and get naloxone kits. Um, to use the prescription drug monitoring program, so that's ISOP that we're legally required to do before every single controlled substance, um, to order urine drug tests, and then um, to avoid concurrent opioids and benzodiazepines. Oh, whoops. This isn't going. This is not moving now. Okay, uh, yes. How are opioids associated with HIV outcomes? Opioid analgesics have better heart utilization, better heart adherence, better viral load suppression, or studies are inconclusive about 
um, opioid analgesics and HIV outcomes. Great. Um, so those of you who voted yes, this is correct. Studies are inconclusive about relationships between opioid analgesics and HIV outcomes. So what I wanted to say about the CDC guidelines was those guidelines are really for patients with non-cancer chronic pain. But there's no real specification about HIV-positive patients. And I think in, in some of our work, when we've talked to HIV providers, HIV providers t tend to think our patients are special and tend to think that perhaps if we're the ones prescribing opioid analgesics, perhaps the HIV outcomes are better, like perhaps people are more adherent to their visits because they're coming for their opioid analgesics, or perhaps, you know, then they're more adherent to their medications, et cetera, et cetera. But really, the data are not there to support that um, idea. So few studies have examined the relationship between um, opioids and HIV, and they really have conflicting findings. So in the studies that have looked at any opioid analgesics versus no opioid analgesics, what's been found is that um, one study showed that heart utilization improved in those um, receiving opioid analgesics, but three studies showed no change in heart utilization. In terms of heart adherence, um, one study showed no difference in um, adherence between those who received any versus no opioid analgesics. And in two studies, viral load actually worsened in those who had opioid analgesics. Um, and then in two more studies, there was no difference between those with and without opioid analgesics. And then in the studies that have looked at opioid misuse um, versus no misuse, we know that um, heart, heart adherence is worse in those who have opioid misuse. So there are very few studies here, and as I mentioned previously, you know, chronic pain is really common, opioids are frequently prescribed, and high doses of opioids are frequently prescribed, and so we really need to have a better understanding of what's happening and how these opioids are related to HIV outcomes in our patients. So back to the case, so using the State Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, or ISTOP, um, we confirmed that the patient was prescribed oxycodone and acetaminophen by the emergency room. You make an agreement to continue to prescribe this, but only for one week. You order a urine drug test during the visit, and he agrees, um, and the patient agrees to address his osteoarthritis by seeing an orthopedic surgeon. So here are the results of the urine drug test. So opiates are positive and oxycodone is positive, and everything else is negative. So how do you interpret this? Um, the correct interpretation of, the, is, of this patient who's taking oxycodone with the urine drug test that's positive for oxycodone and opiates is, um, one, he's taking oxycodone and heroin. Two, he's taking oxycodone and another opioid like hydrocodone. He's taking high doses of oxycodone, or all of the above. Okay. All of the above gets the, the nod here, but there's a good dis, um, discrepancy here. So urine toxicology testing is not so common. It's not so easy um, in terms of interpretation. And I would bet that most of the providers here in the seat have had very little training or education around urine toxicology tests. Um, so number four is actually correct. 
So in your materials, this is um, uh, a guide to interpreting your own drug testing. And what we know, you know you, you, clearly you can't see this, but what we know is that it's not so simple. And so there's reasons for false positives, for false negatives. There are a ton of footnotes that describe all of the things that can turn um, your drug tests false positive or false negative. And so really one major take home point here is it's not so easy. And if you don't know the answer, you should look it up, right? Because it's, what we've found is that people think they know, but they don't know. And that's a really dangerous com combination. So what are the common mistakes in terms of interpreting urine drug tests? So the first one is around oxycodone. So oxycodone is one of the most common um, controlled substances prescribed, and um, yet its interpretation in urine drug testing is not so simple. So the first thing is, in terms of a screening test, you must have an assay that specifically examines oxycodone. So opiates is not enough. So you really need an oxycodone in the panel, and so you need to know what your lab um, offers. The second thing is, if taken in high enough doses, oxycodone can quote unquote spill over and cause opiates to be positive. So there are many reasons why you can have a po positive opiates on a urine drug test. It could be because of oxycodone, morphine, codeine, hydrocodone, heroin. There's no way to know that from the screening test. So another big point here is when there's ever any questions, getting a confirmatory test which is a gas chromatography mass spectrography, so it's a GCMS, will actually tell you all of the metabolites that are either the, the levels of all the metabolites, metabolites, so you can see what is actually causing the opiates to be positive. That is the only way to know for sure. So fentanyl, one word about fentanyl. Um, so in the over, um, opioid overdoses in New York City in 2015, Fentanyl was in, found in about half of the overdoses. This is a really big problem. As, as you probably know, fentanyl is in, incredibly potent um, opioid, much more potent than morphine and heroin. And often we think that, that our patients don't know that the fentanyl is, in the, is cut with the heroin or is in the tabs that, that you know, are, are made who knows where. But fentanyl will not be detected on typical screening. And so in order to detect fentanyl, we have to do a GCMS. The third point is around benzodiazepines. So a lot of my patients are prescribed clonazepam by psychiatrists. This is not typically found, um, is not typically detected in the benzodiazepine screen on urine drug testing. So again, you have to know this because patients can be appropriately taking their medications and providers may think that they're not because their urine toxicology test is negative for benzodiazepines, but that is actually appropriate. So, so all of these things clearly demonstrate that it's just not that simple. And, and if there's any questions, get a confirmatory test or GCMS and look it up. So after reviewing the um, results of the patient's urine drug test, you order both a confirmatory um, GCMS for opiates and that test demonstrates both oxycodone and 6-monoacetylmorphine, which is specific to heroin use. So the patient miss, misses his next appointment with you, but he reschedules it a few weeks later. And at that visit, you discuss the urine toxicology test. He reveals that he relapsed with heroin because he couldn't take the pain. He also ran out of his heart because of missing his appointment with you. So now what? So clearly, the patient needs treatment um, for opioid use disorder here. and so. 
in terms of pharmacologic treatment, we have three choices here in the United States. So we have one opioid antagonist, which is naltrexone, and we have two opioid agonists, buprenorphine and methadone. And I'm really going to talk about buprenorphine and methadone. And what we know um, is that buprenorphine is effective in terms of HIV treatment outcomes, drug treatment outcomes, and others. And I'm going to um, go through this. So one big point here um, is, are the differences between methadone and buprenorphine. And so methadone is a full opioid agonist. So this is like all other opioids that really are out, out in the world. So this is morphine, hydrocodone, codeine, oxycodone, et cetera. These are all full opioid agonists. Buprenorphine is a partial opioid agonist, and this is really critical in terms of both the safety profile and some of the clinical challenges. Um, methadone and buprenorphine both go to the mu opioid receptor. Um, buprenorphine also has a very high affinity for the mu opioid receptor, higher than all of the other full opioid agonists. In some ways, this is wonderful because it will sort of block other opioids, but in other ways, it's challenging clinically um, when patients are initiating buprenorphine treatment. So buprenorphine is sublingual, methadone is oral, buprenorphine comes in tabs or films, and for the treatment of opioid addiction, methadone is in liquid form, and they both have um, about the same half-life, and they're both metabolized through the P450 system. So what does it matter in terms of um, uh, the, um, a full opioid agonist versus a partial opioid agonist? So the, the, the first line is a full opioid agonist. And what you can see here on the left, um, on the y-axis is the opioid effect, and on the x-axis is the dose. And so the higher the dose, the more of an effect you get, right? And at some point along this line, patients stop breathing, they have respiratory depression, and, and they can die. The middle line is a partial agonist, and so that's buprenorphine. And so you can see initially with Initially, when you take higher doses, you get a higher opioid effect, but then at some point, you have this plateauing or the ceiling effect. So what does that mean? So that means if patients want to get high and they want to take 50 pills of buprenorphine, and they will still live on that plateau. So it will be like they took three pills. So, in a lot, so that's wonderful um, in terms of safety profile. And if respiratory depression is higher than that ceiling, then you really can't overdose from buprenorphine. And so, and this has been shown in mice data that you can give 100 times you know, normal doses and, and, and there's no respiratory depression. Now, one caveat with that is just that when you start adding other CNS depressants, like alcohol or benzodiazepines, that's how people overdose. But with buprenorphine itself, it's, it's really much safer because of this plateau. How about the difference in treatment delivery? So we know that methadone is highly regulated and buprenorphine is minimally regulated. Um, for those um, receiving treatment at, at methadone treatment programs, it has to be by a doctor there, and counseling, visits, urine toxicology tests, dosing are all regulated at the state and federal levels. Um, and this is contrasted with buprenorphine. So buprenorphine tr treatment can happen anywhere, in any clinical setting, even in syringe exchange programs, et cetera. And um, an MD, a DO, and now, just as of um, two weeks ago, NPs and PAs can prescribe buprenorphine. So that's really, you know, really, I think, important, especially for HIV providers where NPs and PAs really play a, crit a critical role. So in order to um, do this, uh, docs have to go through eight hours of trainings, NPs and PAs have to go through 24 hours of training to get a special DEA number. Um, so, and buprenorphine is dispensed in community pharmacies. You can get a 30-day supply with refills. 
Um, and initially, in the first year, providers are limited to only being able to treat 30 patients at a time. Then after one year, can apply um, for that to go up to 100. And then, um, in specific situations, can apply to go up to 275 patients at a time. So other key differences be um, between buprenorphine and other opioids is not only the fact that it's a partial opioid agonist, but the way in which we prescribe was we use the combination um, formulation, which is buprenorphine naloxone. So buprenorphine comes in buprenorphine only, and then the buprenorphine naloxone combination. And 99% of what's prescribed is the buprenorphine naloxone combination. Um, so, so naloxone is an antagonist. Buprenorphine is an agonist. So it's a little bit weird to say, well, why is there an antagonist and an agonist in the same pill? Because there's not many other things in medicine where we have an antagonist and an agonist together. And so here's how it works, is if buprenorphine is taken, if this um, combination, buprenorphine naloxone, is taken sublingually as directed, the buprenorphine is absorbed and the naloxone is not. However, if patients want to get high, crush it up and inject it, both the buprenorphine and naloxone will be absorbed and the naloxone will cause the patient to go into immediate opioid withdrawal. And so people know that. And so if people want to misuse an opioid, they are not going to choose necessarily a partial opioid agonist with the naloxone, because you can't crush it up and inject it, when we have a lot of other options out there that are full opioid agonists. So after realizing you can offer the patient treatment, buprenorphine treatment, um, you take the eight-hour training, you become certified, and you get your DEAX number. Um, at, in the next visit, you offer buprenorphine treatment, and he's heard of it, but he's never taken it. And he knows other people who are taking buprenorphine, but none of them are HIV positive. So he's worried about an interaction between buprenorphine and HIV. So he asks, how well does buprenorphine work for people with HIV? And so um, we, there's been... Um, a multi-site study across the United States that included 10 sites that studied this exact question about integration of buprenorphine into HIV treatment. And so um, these sites all had variable study designs. So some of them were randomized controlled trials, but most of them were cohort studies, and they followed patients for 12 months. Um, so total, there were 386 participants. They were all HIV positive, all opioid dependent, and all eligible for buprenorphine treatment. So what did we find? Um, so in terms of HIV outcomes, so this, the, um, these bars looked at patients who were retained on buprenorphine for at least three or four quarters out of the year versus those who were not retained on buprenorphine. So the dark bars are those who were retained, the lighter bars are those who were not retained. And the, um, the graph on the left looks at initiating antiretroviral therapy for those who were not on antiretroviral therapy at the time that they came um, for, for opioid addiction treatment. And so what you can see here is that in each quarter that the, that the percent of those who were actually retained on buprenorphine treatment were more likely to be taking antiretroviral therapy. On the graph um, to your right, um, it looks at viral load suppression. But the same thing here, that those who were retained on buprenorphine treatment in the dark bars were more likely to be virally suppressed than those who were not retained on buprenorphine treatment. What about drug treatment outcomes? Um, so in the red bars are for opioids, the blue bars are stimulants, and the black bars are sedatives. And what we can see is those who initiated buprenorphine treatment um, were much less likely to use opioids. So this was a statistical significant reduction in opioid use, um, also a reduction in stimulant use, and no change in sedative use. 
So what's interesting here, two points. One is that stimulant use decreased, but buprenorphine is, treats opioid use disorder, not st any stimulant use disorder. But commonly with our patients, if they're using stimulants, it's typically with an opioid, and once the opioids go away, the stimulants go away as well. In addition, just of note, that the opioid use does not go down to zero, right? And so this is a chronic illness, you know, that it's relapsing and remitting, and so while there's clearly improvements, you know, a lot of our patients are not perfect, um, and, you know, there's still intermittent opioid use. So what about other outcomes? Um, so we know that there's a reduction in cocaine use with buprenorphine treatment, um, uh, and this is, again, among HIV-positive patients in this, in this um, initiative. We also know that quality of life improves both physical health and mental health. And in terms of safety and drug, drug interactions, really there were no clinically significant drug-drug interactions. Atazanavir is the one um, medication that um, has been studied the most. And then also there are no um, problems with hepatic enzymes, even though a lot of these patients are hep C positive. Um, so to summarize, uh, the opioid epidemic continues to grow. Um, and while there's a plateau in opioid analgesic-related deaths, we are continuing to see increases in heroin-related deaths. And clearly, there's a large gap in treatment that continues, and this is something that we really have the ability to bend that curve and make a difference. Um, there are many challenges to, um, to managing pain with opioids, including interpretation of urine drug tests, um, and it remains unclear how opioid analgesic use is associated with HIV outcomes. Um, and then finally, we know that integration of buprenorphine with HIV treatment is associated with many positive outcomes. Thank you. I, I also just want to say one word. I mean, our, our Department of Health is very um, proactive. And so if people are interested in um, initiating buprenorphine treatment into your care setting, they can set you up with mentors. Um, they will um, talk with you. They will send out uh, implementation guides. They will give you free naloxone kits. I mean, they really, really are pushing to address the opioid epidemic. There's a question, uh, <clears throat> question that extends what you mentioned even further. Um, what are your thoughts on buprenorphine induction at home versus a clinic setting? Uh, that's a great question. So this is something close to my heart. Um, so the as I mentioned, because the buprenorphine has a very high affinity for the mu opioid receptor, um, changing someone for a, from a full opioid agonist to a partial opioid agonist um, puts them at risk for precipitated withdrawal. So the initial national guidelines recommended that that, that process, that induction process, be observed in a clinical setting. It was, it's very challenging for providers. It's very challenging for patients because basically what, what, what that looks like is titrating up a dose and reassessing several times over a two, three, four-hour period, and that, that's just not really feasible. So there have been um, several people, including our group at Montefiore, who have um, developed sort of home induction processes or kits. And, um, all of the studies have basically shown that people had just as good of outcomes when they did this at home and it wasn't observed than when they did it in a clinic. And so now, at least at our site, we do home inductions 95% of the time. We walk through patients through the process, develop a plan with them. They do it at home. They do it on the weekends. They do it on their own time. And, and really, they have no problems. 
Are there any ART agents which can give false positive drug toxicology uh, tests? And efavirenz specifically is mentioned as one that um, is said to cause false positives. Um, and also marijuana, it looks like. Uh, yeah, um, so I, I haven't heard that about efavirenz. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I do think a I lot of either. the... The, a lot of the antipsychotics that our patients are on can certainly cause um, false positives. Um, and then, yeah, I'm not sure if that marijuana is about the favorins in marijuana. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, marijuana is like a whole discussion. Um, At least. <laughs> I know. Uh, and and yeah, I think, you know, in terms of providers and clinics, uh, Everyone sort of has to figure out how they feel about marijuana. In our, in our clinics, we don't really pay that much attention uh, to, to drug testing that's positive for marijuana. Uh, I mean, we explore to see if people have marijuana use disorders, and if they don't, we, we kind of don't really do anything with the results. So how did you wind up in the patient treating the osteoarthritic pain if you stabilize the patient on buprenorphine? Oh, that's a great question. So, so buprenorphine has analgesic effects. It is an opioid. Um, so often um, for some our patients like this, um, who I'm really concerned about relapse with any other opioid, I would offer buprenorphine as a way to um, prevent relapse, um, but then also to address their pain. And so patients do get um, analgesia from it. And often the dosing has to be a little bit more frequent, so we will dose twice a day or sometimes even three times a day to get a better analgesic effect. Um, and, you know, it works, it works fairly well. And it works well when, especially if patients know that we can't layer additional opioids on top of their buprenorphine, um, which you really can't because it blocks other opioids. So how do you approach urine testing with patients? Do you inform them that you're going to test them? I mean, I know the answer. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, again, I, I mean, I have to say, when I first started as a provider, I was against urine drug testing. This was like 20 years ago. So I thought, oh, it means that we're not, like, we, it means that I don't trust my patients, I don't, you know. And I've really come full circle on that because it's the same kind of thing for diabetes. Like if our patients say to us, like, oh, I'm keeping a diet, does that mean we don't get a hemoglobin A1C? Of course not, right? So it's the same thing. It's one piece of information in all of the information that we get with our patients in terms of thinking about how to manage um, their illness best. So we, in terms of our buprenorphine treatment program in our clinic, have a treatment agreement for everybody when they first come in and they start treatment. We sit down with them and we say, this is what treatment looks like. No early refills. It's going to be the same doctors. No doctor shopping. We're going to do urine drug testing. We're going to do you know, all of these things. And we really spell it out so that the expectations are crystal clear. In our patients, we get urine drug testing every person, every visit. There are clearly data that demonstrate that doctors don't, you know, we think we know certain patients are telling us the truth and other patients are not. We don't. It's a 50-50 um, flip of the coin. And there's a lot of biases because, we t because doctors are going to tend to um, trust patients who look like them. And so this is really potentially problematic. And so I would argue that it's very important to have a systematic approach to urine drug testing. National guidelines basically say do it at least once, at least do it annually, there's no clear guidelines about how frequently to do it, but for the treatment of addiction in our clinic, every person, every time, 
It makes it simple, expectations are clear, and it's really systematized. So is it still um, common in the Bronx for people to sell their urines? Um, and go, happens in New Haven as well, uh, both human and canine Listen, urines. people are very smart, right? I mean, clever, uh, all kinds of things can happen with the urine. People sell urine, people dilute the urine. Um, people put the tablets in the urine, right? So, so there are ways to, to address this. So one, I didn't show you, but on every urine drug test, you get a urine creatinine. And so if the creatinine is really low, if it's less than 20, that's a red flag for dilution um, or, the, or it, that it's just not urine. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing is, is, is particularly for buprenorphine. So a buprenorphine GCMS um, will provide norbuprenorphine and buprenorphine levels. So norbuprenorphine is the metabolite. So if you've put the buprenorphine tablet in the urine, you're going to have basically no norbuprenorphine, and you're going to have really high buprenorphine levels. So this discrepancy between the buprenorphine and the norbuprenorphine levels is another red flag to say, this looks like it's not actually coming from within you, but in fact it's a tablet placed in the, in the urine. So there are ways to sort of you know, monitor this. And, uh, you know, it's, pr it's practice, like everything else. The more you do, the better you get. Have it, people used serum rather than urine testing for, um, as a, a measure of opiate um, adherence? Yeah, so I, I definitely am not aware of, um, of serum testing. However, there, there are oral swabs that, that people can do. Um, you know, so, so one might say, well, you know, that's, it's, it's, um, there's less problems in terms of, you know, using, you know, adulterating the urine um, if you use the oral swabs. So the oral swabs we've looked into, are, you know, is, are not as great as they seem. Patients who smoke, which is like 85% of our patients with buprenorphine, have increased saliva production, which then dilutes the drug level. So that's one issue. Um, and the sensitivity and specificity for the tests um, really are just not as good um, as compared to urine. So given what you said, um, would it have made sense to use buprenorphine initially for pain management rather than oxycodone at all? Right, so um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. So the buprenorphine um, that, that I'm talking about, the buprenorphine naloxone and the buprenorphine-only sublingual tablets and films are FDA-approved for the treatment of opioid use disorder. They are not FDA-approved for the treatment of pain. Now, we do a lot of stuff off-label as providers. I mean, we probably don't even know what we do that's off-label. Um, but I, but, so I, I actually, um, I think that we can get ourselves into trouble when it's not clear what we're treating. Is the buprenorphine for pain, or, is it, or are you saying that I have an addiction? And I think if those waters are muddy, it's very challenging in terms of then what happens if the buprenorphine doesn't work. Then do you do Percocets or um, oxycodone acetaminophen? or do you then go to a methadone program, right? And so I think that in order to prescribe buprenorphine with my patients, I am very clear, this is for addiction. Now, it might be for um, preventing relapse, but there's an addiction, and it will have analgesic properties, but if people don't have a diagnosis of addiction, I would really caution against um, using this because I think it's, it can just be, get very confusing about what you're treating. Poppy seeds? Yeah, poppy seeds. Um, so poppy seeds can cause false positive um, opiate 
uh, you're in tax conscious. I mean, you need, you need to have a substantial amount, but uh, it, it happens. It happens. Patients hoarding opiates. Yeah, hoarding opiates. So um, this is something we see frequently, and I have mixed feelings about this. You know, we, take, we tell our patients they're controlled substances. We should take them exactly as directed. But we all know on, in the real world the challenges that we and our patients have in dealing with insurance companies. And the whole prior authorization business for buprenorphine really, really <clears throat> caused some serious problems with our patients. We had patients who could not get their medication, who had been on it for years, and who relapsed. And it's really just tragic. Now, thank goodness the New York State legislation put in, into law um, the requirement that um, insurance companies have at least one preferred buprenorphine formulation that no longer requires prior authorization. This just went into law. Um, in January for both commercial insurance and Medicaid. I have to say, on the ground, I am still getting prior authorization requests. So in some ways, you know, the patients are smart. They're doing it because if, if they have a, you know, need a prior authorization and they can't get their medications for 72 hours or a week and they've stored away a little bit of buprenorphine, you know, I can understand that. Um, so hopefully we can deal with the insurance issue and hopefully this won't need to happen, but it's, um, you know, being a realist, it's, it's sort of a mixed bag. Thank you. So that's the end of the questions. Chanazo, I wanted to thank you and all of the other speakers this afternoon. Um, this is very interesting and varied um, discussions of issues very commonly encountered in treating HIV beyond antiretrovirals and other things, and very much a part of the bread and butter of caring for patients, challenging populations. So um, I hope you all appreciated our including this in the, in the, uh, in the course. Well, thank you all, all for attending and um, participating and um, choosing, um, hearing about opiates and buprenorphine over the sunny day in Washington Park, um, and have a wonderful day. Thank you.